We're going to look at Psalm 23 today. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when they think about Psalm 23, they think of David as a young shepherd boy, maybe laying back on the grass and writing the psalm. And that's possible. It's, it's certainly possible. But I rather think that David more likely wrote the Psalm 23 as an older man, reflecting not only his, on his time as a shepherd, but on his life and what had happened in his life and how God, as his shepherd, had been with him through both the hard times and the, and the good times, but especially, I think, the hard times. Because that's when, we, when you look at it, that's when we see God most clearly. Psalm 23 is often used at funerals, and that's appropriate, but we should also view Psalm 23 not just for the sorrowful. Psalm 23 deals with what God does for us. As David says, all the days of my life. The psalm is applicable to us today because it tells how God leads us and how he protects us, how he honors us, and how he pursues us. And more than that, it's a picture of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. But before we get into Psalm 23, we need to deal with a problem. The cliche goes like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. In the case of Psalm 23, I think familiarity breeds boredom. Next to John 3, next to John 3:16, Psalm 23, at least the first line, "The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want," is one of the most well-known passages of scripture. <clears throat> Many people memorize Psalm 23. I memorized Psalm 23. I, I had to memorize it for a fourth grade school program, and I was my job was to memorize it and recite it, <laughs> much like this, standing up here in front of a whole bunch of people. I was a little more nervous at the time, and, I, and honestly, I didn't do very well. But a lot of folks have memorized Psalm 23. But being so familiar with Psalm 23, I think, can make it a bit inaccessible. Because we're used to it. One might say, yeah, I know Psalm 23. It's about the Good Shepherd. And that becomes the limit of our thinking about it. We know Psalm 23 so well that we don't know it so well as we think we do. So, I want to encourage you this morning as we uh, get into Psalm 23 to let go of what you know or what you think you know about the psalm and not that what you know is wrong, but rather approach it with fresh eyes and fresh ears, even maybe as the psalm is new to you. And while I may not say anything that you haven't heard or know, I encourage you to come, as I said, with fresh eyes and fresh ears, uh, and that you may walk away if you do that with a new appreciation, not just for the psalm, but for your good shepherd as well. So, in an effort to cure our familiarity with Psalm 23, I want to do two things. First thing I'd like to do is I'd like to show a video about Psalm the familiarity a little bit, uh, is to read the psalm from a, another translation. We're, we'll be using the ESV translation as we go through our study this morning. 
But I'd like to read it from uh, what's called the Lexham English translation of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was completed around 100 B.C. and is likely a Bible that Jesus and his disciples were familiar with. But uh, hopefully we can put it up on the screen. I'm going to go ahead and read it here. Very good. Okay. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord shepherds me, and nothing will be lacking for me. In a place of tender grass, there he causes me to dwell. At a river of rest, he nourishes me. He turns around my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness on account of his name. For even if I should go in the middle of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil things, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they exhort me. You prepare a table, uh, you prepare before me a table opposite those who oppress me. You anoint my head with olive oil, and your drinking cup is satisfying as the best. Your mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and my dwelling will be in the house of the Lord for the length of days. Let's pray. Father, I just would ask this morning that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our mind to this psalm that we can get too familiar with. And I pray, Father, that we will see things that we haven't seen before, that we'll hear things that we haven't heard before, but more importantly, Father, that we would get a deeper understanding of who you are as our shepherd and who Jesus is as our good shepherd. We pray this in your name. Amen. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So let's talk a little bit about shepherds uh, in the scriptures. More than anything else, Psalm 23 is about the shepherd, about the good shepherd. David identifies Yahweh as his shepherd. And what stands out about this simple line is that the relationship between David and God is personal. David would know that a shepherd cares for his sheep. And as we'll mention later, ancient Near Eastern shepherds and even some modern-day shepherds named their sheep. David's experience as a shepherd gave him insight into how God cares for his people, like a shepherd cares for his sheep. And Scripture says a lot about shepherds, but I want to highlight just a couple of things. First, I want to highlight a contrast between bad and good shepherds, and then I want to highlight our good shepherd. So what makes a good, what makes a good shepherd? Well, fortunately, the Scriptures show us that. But they show us that first by showing us what a bad shepherd looks like. Ezekiel was a prophet to God, of God, to the exiles in Babylon. The southern kingdom of Judah had been exiled to Babylon for its continued rejection of God by following other gods. And in Ezekiel 34, God is against the shepherds of Judah, which included both the priests and the national leaders. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, and became, they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. 
What makes a bad shepherd is one who cares for himself and not the sheep. A shepherd is to give himself for the sheep. He is to attend to all their needs and only deal with his needs after the sheep are cared for. But rather than care for the sheep, the shepherds of Ezekiel 34 abused the sheep. And then Ezekiel contrasts the bad shepherds with what a good shepherd looks like. Same chapter, Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from their countries and I'll bring them to their own land. And I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So God, as our shepherd, will not only feed the sheep, he pursues them, he seeks them. He seeks to bring them back from where they've been scattered. And of course, this image is is meant to demonstrate how God will care for his people in opposition to the bad shepherds who do not care for the people of God. God will find the scattered sheep and bring them back to their own land. And God will do all the things that the shepherds of Judah did not. God will take them to the best pastures. He will cure the injured. He will give strength to the weak. He will feed them and feed them in justice. And if you notice, justice will also be given to the bad shepherds. And then the good shepherd. In John 10, 1 through 15, Jesus Jesus says this about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This passage of Scripture is packed. And we don't have time to unpack everything about it, but I do want to highlight a few things. The first thing I want to highlight is that the the sheep know the shepherd's voice. A shepherd would know all of his sheep and often name them, as we mentioned before. And in turn, the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. This speaks of a lasting relationship and commitment by the shepherd 
to the sheep he cares for. Jesus has that relationship with us. Number two, shepherd is not only a shepherd, but a door through whom the sheep are saved, which is a mixture of metaphors here uh, in, in what Jesus says. So Jesus is not only a shepherd, but he's the door to the sheepfold, which brings up the image is, is, is that's where salvation comes from. So we get saved through the door, and then the one who is the door to the sheep becomes the shepherd and cares for his sheep. The thief, referred to in verse 2, only comes to kill. The true shepherd protects the sheep to give them life and to give them a life of fullness, of abundance. One meaning of the word abundant is to have great advantage. The imagery is that of a shepherd taking good care of his sheep and that they're well cared for and they're safe and content. The sheep's advantage is the shepherd. And then the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This image veers from what a shepherd would do. And while a shepherd would protect the sheep from wild animals, for a shepherd to die would mean disaster for the sheep. But in his death, Jesus fulfills the need of the sheep for salvation. His death makes the path open for the sheep to have an abundant life, both now and in eternity. And then Jesus describes himself as the good or model shepherd. He is a perfect picture of a shepherd, which includes his dying for the sheep, to save them, providing the space for them to have an abundant life. Jesus here repeats the notion that he knows the sheep and they know him in the same way that Jesus and the Father know each other. And you might remember in John 17, which is sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, one of the things he prays for is that we would know the Father as Jesus knows the Father. The shepherd, the good shepherd, does that. And the ministry of the good shepherd continues into eternity. Romans 7, 17, or excuse me, Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus will continue to shepherd his people. And then sheep. Sheep are often portrayed as stupid. And then, of course, the connection is made between stupid sheep and stupid people. Uh, that may be true. As I look around the room, I don't see too many stupid people. One or two exceptions, maybe. No names. However, while sheep are mentioned hundreds of times in the scriptures, they are not generally described in terms of their intelligence, but normally shown as creatures that cannot defend themselves. Sheep need to be rescued from wild animals. Animals, 1 Samuel 17. They're often portrayed as scattered. In 1 Kings 22, they're helpless. Psalm 44, they are weak. Genesis 33, and they are unable to fend for themselves. Numbers 27. But one passage will suffice to make the point. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sheep are dependent on a shepherd. Without a shepherd, sheep wander. Without a shepherd, sheep wander and they get lost and they die. Sheep need a shepherd. And as believers, we like sheep are totally dependent on the good shepherd. And then going back to verse 1, the sheep of the shepherd want for nothing. 
They lack nothing. Now, this doesn't mean there won't be any difficulty. That doesn't mean there won't be times where things are scarce. But sheep were threatened by wild animals or by drought or by scarce pasture much of the time. The shepherd does everything necessary to see that the sheep are fed, watered, and protected. In another psalm, David recounts a particularly difficult time in his life when he was running from Saul. David calls on people to praise the Lord and to magnify him in this psalm, and he calls on people to remain loyal to him because his people lack nothing. Psalm 34, 9 and 10. Oh, fear, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And remember that David is saying this while he's on the run from Saul, living in caves, finding hiding places. The young lions suffer and want hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack good, no good thing. And Nehemiah and the returned exiles prayed before God to acknowledge their sin and to call on his help. In the prayer, Nehemiah recalls the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, Nehemiah 9.21. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Thinking about the wilderness experience of the, of the Israelites, man is probably the best example of how God provided in the wilderness. This wilderness picture seems to be what David is what is what is behind David's statement. What is needed is provided when it is needed. Psalm 22, 23, 2 through 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the shepherd leads. He leads in rest and provision. The point of these verses is that the shepherd does not does what the sheep need most, and that's leading. The responsibility of an ancient Near Eastern shepherd was to take his herd of sheep to where the waters and the pastures were, no matter where they were. And to be led in this way is to be led for what is needed to survive and thrive. For the sheep, to be led to pastures and waters is to be led to rest. The word for lead in Hebrew in verse 2 there has a specific meaning of leading to whatever provision is needed. And it doesn't apply just, of course, to sheep. The Hebrew word translated in uh, lead in verse uh, 2 there is used also in Second Chronicles. The southern kingdom of Judah was brutally defeated by the northern kingdom of Israel. In addition to all the spoil, Israel took 200,000 Judahites into captivity and intended to make them slaves. But God sent a prophet named Oded to tell Israel that they went too far in their defeat of their Jewish brothers. The men of Israel at this changed their intent and returned the captives to Judah, saying in part that they were carrying the wounded among the captives and brought them home. In this verse, the Hebrew word translated lead in verse 2 of Psalm 23 is translated here as carrying. Second Chronicles 28.15 and the men who had been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all those who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys. They brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. And the shepherd also leads to life. Using a parallelism in verse 2 with verse 3, David compares the leading of the sheep to pasture to the leading of the Lord in his life. 
and not just his physical life, but his spiritual life. The verse presents the idea that the Lord leads David into a life that pleases him, pleases God, by restoring him to a condition that pleases God. And what pleases God is that David walks in righteousness. So rather than leave David alone in his own strength to act righteously, God leads him and us. And God does this for his own namesake, for his reputation, and for his glory. The Hebrew word for lead here in verse 3, different than the one in verse 2, is used in several psalms to refer to God's leading his people into righteousness. Psalm 143.10 Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And the picture of level ground there is a person who's walking in righteousness, who's making good moral choices. Psalm 23.4 So the shepherd leads and the shepherd protects. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the shepherd protects by his presence. Philip Keller in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, notes that a shepherd would at times have to lead his sheep through dangerous areas, often between hills, through a valley, that made the sheep vulnerable to predators. And he would do that in order to get them to green pastures and calm waters. It was in these times that the shepherd had to be most diligent for the protection of the sheep. As a shepherd, David would have been very familiar with this. He applies this experience to his relationship with God. And it is in such times that David declares that he will not be fearful of what may come against him. I will fear no evil does not suggest an absence of fear, but a reliance or trust on God for protection protection and perseverance. David can say this because he knows God is with him. That same word is used in Psalm 118.6, which expresses the idea in a more basic way. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the shepherd protects with his presence, and he protects by bringing comfort. Going beyond God's presence while in this valley, God brings comfort for David. The reason for the comfort is the shepherd's rod and staff. Much has been made about how the staff, and even more so the rod, are disciplinary tools the shepherd uses with sheep, and there's some truth in that. But, for example, the primary use of the staff was as a tool to guide sheep in the right direction, or occasionally to grab them if they're going the wrong way. There's, there's a person, you can't see him off stage here, he's got a staff, and he's ready to grab me if I say something stupid. And then we've got a picture of a staff, I think. Wait for it. There it is. Uh, and you're familiar with this. It's a very common uh, image. It's the staff, and you can imagine the shepherd using the staff to kind of push sheep back in line, if you will, or to grab the sheep and to get them back with the, with the other sheep. On the other hand, the rod could be used to bonk a sheep. I like bonk. I have to do that to my dog sometimes. When, when, I, when we're on a walk, I have to bonk her on the head. I do it gently. Okay. But the rod could be used to bonk a sheep if it's being particularly stubborn. For discipline, but mostly the rod was used as a weapon. We've got a rod. There it is. Right. Uh, the rod was often used as a weapon to hit or throw at predators. The, the rod there is, you know, the staff is fairly long. The rod's going to be shorter, something about like that. It'll have that big knob on the end to whack 
predators with. The rod and the staff of a shepherd were the, for the sheep's protection from enemies. And you can imagine this, a sheep walking along in the herd, watching the shepherd, and watching the shepherd carry the staff and carry the rod. And that would bring comfort to the sheep because of the protection they offered. And David now makes a switch. Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. David switches from a shepherd sheep image to a king victor image. As a shepherd, David knew well about shepherds and sheep. And as a king, he also knew well about kingly feasts. The picture David draws here is that of a victorious general recently returned from a victory over enemies. In ancient times, the king would give a victory feast for the general. The feast would often be done while captured enemy soldiers who were now slaves would be in the banquet hall in chains. They would be made to watch the feast while not being able to partake in it. Partaking of the feast indicated the general's acceptance of the king's favor and the general's connection to the king. So the table was laid out while the captured watched. And not only would the captives be made to watch the feast, and they would be further humiliated as the victory was celebrated right in front of them. That's the picture that David is drawing. And then he talks about the oil in the cup. <clears throat> so along with this preparation of the feasting table, the image of the care of the king for his follower, his victor, is expressed in the oil in the cup. A general could be treated to fine oils that would be used to anoint the forehead. This provided a sheen to the complexion, and it would provide a pleasing aroma in the banquet room. Such anointing was seen as a generous gift and a high honor. And the cup of this verse, in this verse, is a cup of wine. The traditional translation of the cup overflowing is better understood as a cup that is always full. And you might relate this to if you're in a restaurant and the waitress keeps coming by and filling your cup of coffee. That's the image that's being uh, displayed here. It's understood as a cup that is always full. The host of the banquet would continually fill the honored general's cup again as a way to honor the guest. The table, the oil, and the cup were all signs of blessing and honor given by the king. You may remember the Septuagint reading we read earlier speaks of the cup as satisfying indicating that the best wine was used. Also, an honor. This image is how David knows his God to be. This reflects the heart of God. It reflects God's desire to care for and bless his people and to honor them. God honoring us? There's another picture, I think, that's appropriate to this image that David is portraying, but it's probably one, well, I'm sure it's one he didn't think of and, and not even know about. I refer to the wedding feast of the Lamb that takes place at the end of the tribulation. There's a picture there. I love this picture. You've probably seen this other places. Nancy and I had a, a, a print of this in our home for a while. So you have this picture of this table, this very long table. And it's set on the table are the plates uh, covered in gold and gold silverware. And you see the candles, and it's a very uh, inviting place. Kind of, kind of place I'd like to be invited to. Kind of meal that I'd like to be invited to. But the marriage supper of the Lamb evokes this image. 
Those who are invited to the feast, this feast, are the saints. Those who follow the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. What's fascinating uh, about the feast as described in Revelation is the timing of it. Just before that passage, there's a lengthy passage describing the, the near the end of the tribulation, the utter defeat of what was called Babylon the Great. And that represents the world government that is fully corrupted and in full and outright rebellion against God. It is right after this passage that the marriage feast is described. In front of your enemies, you prepare a table for me in front of my enemies. And right after the passage, the marriage feast passage, is another passage which describes the second coming of Christ where he, in an instant, defeats, quote, the best, the, the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the throne and against his army. The marriage supper of the Lamb is figuratively held in the presence of the enemies just defeated by God and in the presence of the enemy who would be to, who were to be defeated in the final battle of the tribulation immediately thereafter. As David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then finally, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Whether it is the shepherd of the sheep or the king of the feast that's in view here, David says that he's certain of one thing. The word translated surely can also be translated only. Let's read it that way. Only goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This word is, suggests a unique singular thing that, hap, that, uh, that happens only in a very specific case. David is suggesting that based on the Lord as shepherd of the sheep and as king of the feast, it is certain that his goodness and mercy will follow. And follow here is probably not the best translation of the Hebrew word in the verse. Better is pursue. This is a pursuit for God. What is described here is not something like this, that God says, okay, here it is, my mercy and goodness, come and get it if you can, I'm waiting. God knows that we can't come and get it. He knows that we don't have the power or even the will to do so. That is why Christ came. That's why Christ must draw us to himself. So God pursues us. I love how C.S. Lewis described God. He called God the hound of heaven. The picture of a bloodhound seeking and pursuing and finding. The care and honor of the shepherd king has shown, says that he will act in the same way for my entire life. And David says this, for all the days of my life. And in parallelism, says forever. But forever here doesn't indicate eternity. The Hebrew is length of days, meaning all the days of my life on this planet. 
And then comes eternity, where the pursuit will no longer be necessary because it will be in his very presence. So God says that there are two things that pursue me as one of his sheep, and one thing that he pursues me for. The two things are that God pursues me for his, with his goodness and mercy. Goodness is just that. Every good and perfect thing comes from heaven. God wants to give us good things, and he has in Christ, and he does in the abundant blessings that he gives every day. But he also pursues me with mercy. And uh, I love this word. We've talked about this word before. The Hebrew word is one that we've seen several times. It's the word hesed, meaning God's steadfast love or his loyal love. This is the heart and character of God. This word is used also in Exodus. This is when God declared himself to Moses. And when God passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, God proclaimed his name to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's God's name. That's his character. That's his heart. And then Moses responds to this. Exodus 34, 8 and 9. And Moses quickly bowed his, bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshipped. That's a good response. And then he said, If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And, our, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses knew the people he was leading. He knew they were stiff-necked and full of sin. And instead of focusing on God's declaration that it will punish the guilty to the third or fourth generation, Moses calls on God to grant his forgiveness to those people and to forgive their sin, to express his hesed. Moses got God's name and his character and that God desires to forgive and to show his hesed to thousands. That phrase there, by the way, may also be read like this, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. And then the thing that God pursues David for is his home. David knew what God would pursue that what God would pursue him for is that David would be with him in his home, that is in his presence. David calls it the house of the Lord for which David would mean the tabernacle. And we talked at length before that the tabernacle or temple in Jewish thinking was far more than a structure. It was the very place that God chose to dwell. The God, the glory of God dwelled in the temple. That was his presence. His, his, his visible, physical presence with the people of God. David knows that the Lord will pursue him so much that he will take David into his presence for his entire life and, of course, into eternity. So as I was thinking about how to apply this and... Uh, what kind of applications I could I could raise on this? It occurred to me that rather than giving a list of things people can apply this word would be just to do to suggest one thing. And the one thing I would suggest is is has to do with this. David looked back on his life. 
he looked back on his life and he saw how God is his shepherd. And he saw everything that God had done in his life. There were times of hardship, illness, and heartbreak. But even so, David saw his walk with God like a good shepherd leading and taking care of the sheep, of which David is one. So I encourage you to do what David did. I encourage you to set, some t- set aside some time today, maybe tomorrow, and sit down, take a few minutes, and recall the leading and the protection and the provision and the welcome and the honor your shepherd has given you. What has God done and accomplished in your life that will lead you to agree with David that God's steadfast love and goodness will pursue you the rest of your life? Now, I'm not suggesting that you write a psalm, although that wouldn't be a bad thing. But it would be worth your while to sit down and write out what God has done in your life, and then to remember and to worship your good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being our shepherd. And thank you, Jesus, for being our good shepherd. And thank you, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. Not only are you with us, but you're in us. So your leading is personal and your leading is close by. And all we have to do is listen and follow. May we be people, Lord, who follow you, who know your voice and hear your voice and follow you. And thank you, Lord, for pursuing us. Thank you for chasing us down, like uh, C.S. Lewis says, like the hound of heaven. Thank you for coming after us, Lord, and saving us and bringing us into your kingdom and bringing us into your sheepfold. Thank you for shepherding us. In Jesus' name, amen.